is a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. For some reason, when we planned out the Mark series, when Scott and I sort of sat down and divided it out and looked at the passages, um, it, probably, it got quite late into the evening when we were doing this. It, it took some time. And probably I missed the fact that I've got the entirety of Mark chapter 12. <laughs> Which means that that's all we've got this morning, the entirety of Mark chapter 12. And so quite how that's going to work in the next 30 minutes, I don't know. But if you've got the roast chicken on, and there's any way of you sort of controlling your oven remotely, then you might want to turn it down slightly, because we could be here a while. <laughs> um, but what I would like to do, even though we're not going to spend loads on all of it, I would like to read it. Because I think there's something about reading scripture together. And it'd be easy to go, oh, you know, well, no, actually, I think it's important to read it. So it, it's not a short chapter, but I want us to read it together. And uh, then we'll draw out some things from some different parts of it. It's a collection of some, some different things that, that's going on here, a parable and some teachings um, and stuff that Jesus has got to say. And there's a number of different things that I've been So if you've got your Bible open, uh, we're in Mark chapter 12, and we'll start at verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it dug a pit for the winepress and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants, and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. 
and they were amazed at him. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. So there's a variety of things going on here. Jesus uh, is responding to some different questions that are asked of him, many uh, by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Herodians are in on the act as well here. And don't think that they all agree with each other. There's lots that they don't agree on, actually, those three groups. But they do agree that they're trying to trick Jesus and trying to get rid of him. 
So we're going to group some things together and see what this passage has to teach us. So let's pray and ask Jesus to help us. Father, we pray as we look at these uh, words together, we look at this passage together, that you would help us understand what we've read and you would apply it to our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So firstly, we've got Jesus speaking against the leader. There's this parable he tells uh, about an owner of a vineyard. Uh, and a little bit later, he, he speaks quite directly uh, against the teachers of the law. Uh, and Jesus is speaking against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law. He's, he's, <coughs> excuse me, he doesn't always do it directly. And so the parable that he tells, they know that he's getting at him. They know that it's directed towards them. And it gets under their skin. And a little bit later, he's really specific, saying, watch out for these people. They clearly don't like that, unsurprisingly. And there's a warning there to uh, the people that Jesus is speaking to uh, about their leaders and about some of these people that really don't have the kingdom of God in mind, even though they might say that they do. Jesus is really clear later in, in, the, in the chapter where he says, watch out for these people who like to walk around in their flowing robes and pray their lengthy prayers and get the best seats in the synagogue and at, at banquets and so on. And we can be quick to criticise them. But the reality is that we need to watch our own hearts as well. And particularly those of us who are leaders in different settings, we need, to make, we need to check our own hearts and make sure that we don't fall into the traps that they fell into. And the reality is that if you are a leader in any area of church life, if the devil can't get you with money or sex, he'll try and get you with power. They're the top three and they always have been and probably always will be. And that one's more subtle. It's easy to see sometimes the sort of money issues or, or sexual issues or attractions and, or inappropriate relationships. You can see those very often, but the power one's more subtle. Because it's not so external, it comes from within. And it's a heart issue. And so before we're too quick to criticise the Pharisees and so on, let's just make sure, friends, that we check our own hearts. That we don't fall into the same traps that they, fought, that they fell into. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. You don't want Jesus to be telling parables against you. Now, I don't think he will. But let's make sure that we're guarding our hearts and we're not falling into the same trap that they fell into. <coughs> the second section that I'll comment on is this rather bizarre story that the Sadducees tell Jesus. There was this guy who married a girl, and he didn't get to have children, he died. So, following the law of Moses, his brother married her, but then he died. And so, <clears throat> his next brother married her, and then he died, and so on. She gets through all seven brothers. Now, <clears throat> it doesn't say it in the scripture, but you have to ask the question, what's going on here? 
what's, what's happening here? You know, it doesn't say. I'm just reading into the text, but clearly something was happening. Anyway, she gets through all seven brothers. None of them have children. And uh, then she dies. And so they ask Jesus this question, who will she be married to at the resurrection? Thinking that it was a really clever question, thinking that it really managed to trick Jesus and they'd got him nailed now. But yet again, Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. It's like, you don't understand. You don't get it. And the Sadducees wanted to prove that there wasn't any, any res resurrection and were trying to manipulate what Jesus was saying. But Jesus' answer is really clear. He talks about the resurrection of the dead. And we won't be married in a way that many of us are now, but we'll get to still recognize people. But the resurrection of the dead will happen. Jesus says so here. Now sometimes we think, is that what the Bible teaches? Absolutely. Jesus talks about it here. And it's why decisions that you make now have eternal consequences just as Paul was referring to earlier in what he shared during worship. The decision that you make now has consequences for eternity. Whether you decide to receive Jesus' offer of love and forgiveness of new life and relationship with him, that affects your life now, but it affects the life to come. So let's make sure we're seeing those decisions in the light of eternity. Not just now, but for all time and all time to come. I could spend a whole ton of time in all of these sections, but for the sake of your dinner, I'm moving quite quickly, deliberately, because I want to make sure that we at least, at least touch on each section. <coughs> but the next bit, you've got Jesus talking about the greatest commandment. And this is a subject, this is perhaps a passage that I could preach many weeks on. Because what Jesus is talking about here are core values of who we are as a church. Loving God and loving others. It's right at the heart of who we are. We've often said, you know, right at the heart of who we are, you know, if you cut us down the middle, what would you find? What's most important to us is loving God. Loving one another. Loving those who, who don't know Jesus yet. Right at the very heart of who we are. And you see this right the way through the New Testament. It all starts with loving God. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Well, what's the most important commandment, he's asked. Out of all of them, what's the top one? Loving God. And you see it not just in our church life, but as you look through the pages of the New Testament, you see it central to the life and values of the early church. It comes out of a heart that's been radically transformed and changed by the Lord. Loving God was central to who the early church were, and it's central to who we are. Loving God is our number one priority. 
And yes, there may be other people in your life that it's important that you love and respect and give time to and so on. Loving your significant other, whoever that is, is important. Loving your kids, if you have them, is important. But listen, loving God centers your life. It's like a foundation stone. If you get that one right, everything else can be built around it. If you get that one wrong, everything else is on rocky foundations. Even though they're good things, loving your husband or wife if you're married, loving your kids if you have them, that they're all important. But if they're not on the solid foundation of loving God, then they're wobbly. There's another parable that Jesus told that talks about that we haven't got time to get into this morning. So it's a foundation to your life. It's number one spot, loving God. So I wonder, how do you work it out in your life? What does it look like for you? I, I, my, my guess is, when we describe it, we immediately think about worship, don't we? Think about loving God. Well, that, that's, like, that's what we've done this morning, isn't it? We, we've gathered, we're in a room, we're, we're loving God together. Singing to him, worshipping him, honouring him. And that's certainly part of it. That's absolutely part of it. But I wonder, is that all it is for you? Or is there more than that? Because actually, an hour or so on a Sunday morning, I don't know what the percentage of the week is, so one of you can work that out who's better with maths than I am, but it's not a lot. You know, an hour and a half out of seven times 24. You can work it out, let me know what it is. What about your daily life? What about everyday life for you? Are you loving God in that context? It's not just about a Sunday morning thing. This is about everyday life for you. It applies Monday through Saturday as much as it does on Sunday. So yeah, I mean, I love worship together. I, I love standing there and singing and being part of the congregation. I equally love being involved in leading it. But it's not just that. What does worship like look like for you during the week? What does loving God look like for you during the week? Jesus said, "Is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's sort of pretty much all-encompassing, isn't it? Everything, everything you've got, love him. Let's be a church that really loves him, friends. Let's not lose this one. People have often looked at Jubilee over the years and said, oh, one of your core values is worship, isn't it? Like, yeah, because loving God's important to us. That's our core value. Worship comes out of that. Let's make sure we don't lose that. Let's keep that high. And like we said, it's not just about Sunday morning. You know, you can worship God on your own. And if you're gifted and you can pick up an instrument, your guitar or... You can sit at the keyboard and play and sing and worship. Then that's fabulous. You do that. Or if you can stick a worship album on a, a, a music app on your phone. Many are available. Or stick a CD on. Or some of you might want to stick a tape on. 
Whatever it is that works for you to help you worship God and love him, I want to encourage you to do that. You might be out for a walk, stick a worship album on. You might be driving somewhere in the car, stick some music on. Worship God. Love him. Let that be at the very center of who you are. Because out of that flows everything else. And actually, everything else does flow out. Loving one another comes on pretty quick, straight after that. You love God and love one another. But you've got to get loving God right first. As you receive God's love, you get to give it away. It's not that you love each other and you try really hard about that. No, no. You receive God's love as, as you worship him and then you give it away. That's the order. That's the flow. That's the outworking. And you can see the outworking <laughs> as you look through the book of Acts. You can see the early church, the way they loved one another, the way they cared for one another, the way they looked after one another. That was the outworking of loving one another that came as a result of firstly loving God. There's the flow to it. That's how it looks. That's how it works. So let me ask you, are we, I use the word devoted quite a lot, I don't know, in terms of, and, and the, the scripture uses that word in, in Acts, talking about the early church being devoted to these things. Are we devoted to them, friends? Are we devoted to a loving God? Are we devoted to loving one another? Are we devoted to loving those that don't know Jesus yet? Like we were being challenged about earlier. Is that a flow happening in your life? Is that anchor of firstly loving God and then loving others? What does it look like for you? Maybe the question is, what does it look like practically? I mean, you could look at the book of Acts. You could look at, I don't know, Acts 4, where it says that there were no needy persons among them, describing the early church community. It's a pretty radical statement, isn't it? Because loving one another was, had a practical outworking to it. It meant something. If there was a need, somebody who had means met that need. You know, they were selling houses and fields and bringing the money and putting it at the apostles' feet. That's part of worship as well. <laughs> we'll get to that in a moment. But as they loved one another and cared practically for one another, so, let's just ask the question, how are we doing on that? How are we doing on that? Is that part of life for us? Is that what it looks like? <coughs> Excuse me. But talking of that really leads us into this other section here that Jesus has some things to say about giving and some things to say about money. And we see that in a couple of places here in this chapter. We can see that he talks about this denarius and paying the tax to Caesar. And we can see over the, or oh, my Bible, it's over the page, of this poor widow that puts some money into the offering. So let's take that passage first. You've got Jesus looking at what's happening as the crowd come and put their money into the offering, into the temple treasury. So people are coming, it's part of their worship, they're, they're coming and they're, they're putting money into this collection, into this offering, and Jesus is watching them. He's observing what's going on. 
It's part of their worship. And he sees how it is. He sees what's going in. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't just see the physical coins going into the offering. What he sees is their hearts. The crowd, they can just see, well, is there a load of money going in or a few small coins? The crowd can see though what's happening externally. Jesus can see through it and see their hearts. And see, so he sees and he's watching here. And before we talk about this, this particular widow that Jesus describes, let's just pause for a second and remind ourselves that just like Jesus could see their hearts in it, he can see ours too. Just before we think we're exempt here, we're not. Yeah, Jesus can see what we give, but he can see our, see our heart, he can see our motivation. See what's going on on the inside as well. So this particular widow that we're the, uh, the account is recorded for us here at the end of Mark 12, Jesus commends her because she gave, not out of her great abundance, not out of the riches that she had, she gave out of her poverty. And whilst what she gave might have been small, probably tiny really, in monetary value, as a proportion of her wealth, or rather lack of it, was huge. For her, it was massive. And Jesus sees her heart, sees what's going on on the inside. And Jesus commends her because she gave not out of her wealth, but out of her poverty. It says that they all gave out of their wealth, verse 44. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. as her offering, as her giving. And so Jesus compares it to those that gave a lot more financially, but gave out of their wealth. And you think, oh, well, sure, sure, that's better. They gave more. No, no, actually, as far as Jesus is concerned, it's this widow that he commends. Because he can see on the inside. He sees what's going on in the heart. But also in this chapter, we've got this in another interesting account of this interaction here of yet again the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus. I mean, do you notice a trend? You have to read through a few pages of the Gospels and time and time again, whenever the Pharisees pop up and ask a question, you know it's not because they've got a heart to learn, their desire is to hear from Jesus. No, no, no. They're out to trick him. They're out to trap him. They're out to sort of trip him up. And so they ask him a question. Let's, let's, let's turn back here. Verse 17. Sorry, verse. I need some new glasses. Thirteen, 13 onwards. I'm going to get a large print Bible, I think. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Mark. 
tells us. That's what they're up to here. That's what's going on here. And so they ask him a question about whether they should pay the imperial tax to Caesar. Now, you need to understand this is a question which is full of political undertones. You know, this is a controversial question. They are out to get him here. They're trying to force Jesus into making a political statement and incite a revolution as a result. It's also a religious statement because many devout Jews thought that Caesar's image on the coin was one of a false god. So they've got political things going on here, religious things going on here. But their question, Jesus sees through their hypocrisy, through their plan, and tells them quite plainly to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's a brilliant reply, isn't it? It's a fantastic reply. And for us, we need to pay our taxes to our government, Caesar, if you like, and give to God what is his. <clears throat> quite simple, we might think. In both places, it's clear. So it rather begs the question, <clears throat> what does that mean in practice? With the government, it's easy, isn't it? Because if you are employed, they take their bit before it gets to you. So you don't get much choice in the matter. And if you're self-employed and have to declare your figures on a, on a form, then they still get to take their bit. And it works it out for you and it's, it's pretty clear-cut. For most of us, we never even see it. They, they take it before it gets anywhere near our bank accounts. The local government, it's simple as well. They send you a council tax bill. You don't pay it, they get quite upset about it. So it's clear. Government take their bit. The local council, they, they take their bit. What about giving to God what's his? What does that look like? What does that mean? Well, that's a question that could take a whole other preach to answer. There's a question I'm often asked, well, what should I give? What, what, what should it look like? What, what sh what, how much should it be? Well, our starting point to answering that has to be that everything is God's anyway. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. And so actually, it all belongs to him anyway. You might think it belongs to you, but actually it doesn't. You're just here for a little while, acting as a steward of some of what is God's. And whether your life is long or, or short, it's not actually yours, it's actually his. You get to look after some of it for a while. You get to make some decisions about what you do with it, how you spend it, where, where it goes, what, what life looks like. But actually, you're just a steward, temporarily looking after that which belongs to him for a little while. And if we get that one right, friends, then it makes the whole subject of giving so much easier. Because when we view it as ours and it's my money and oh, whether I want to give or not, if that's our starting point, then it's quite hard to give some of it away. 
If our starting point is, well, God, it's all yours anyway. I'm just looking after a little bit of it for a, for a little while. Then it's much easier to give some of that away because it's not ours anyway. Now, you can look through the Old Testament and see about what the Bible said about giving and how God's people in the Old Testament were commanded to tie. That was giving 10% of their, their income to the Lord. It was enshrined in Old Testament law. But we know we're not bound by Old Testament law in the same way now. So we, we, we can say, oh, well, that doesn't apply to us. It applied to them. And surely it's different for us now. But Jesus didn't dismiss tithing even when he had an opportunity to do so. And actually, the reality is, if for the Old Testament people of God, giving 10% was a starting point, and actually more than that by the time you added in other offerings and festivals and so on, but let's just call it 10% for the sake of argument. If that was good enough for them, well, could, could we argue that it should be any less now? And Jesus didn't dismiss the idea. Even, even when into, um, talking with the Pharisees, in Luke 11, he had the opportunity to dismiss tithing, but didn't. Quite the opposite. So it seems that whilst the Bible doesn't say in New Testament times, well, this is what you should give, and here's the percentage, and here's how you work it out, it does seem as you look through Scripture that that seems to be the sort of figure that's a starting point. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's the instruction. You can read a whole bunch of other passages in the New Testament that talk about generous giving and giving that's proportional to your income and giving that's regular and periodic and so on. And There's all sorts of things we could say if we had time. But the question is this. Are you giving to God what is God's? Have you worked that one through. We had a trustees meeting uh, just this week, wasn't it? Yeah, this week just gone. And we were looking back over the last year about our finances and we were, we were seeing that, you know, uh, our offerings had increased. And we are very thankful to God for that. And for those of you who give, thank you. Those of you who give regularly, thank you. For those of you who have increased your giving in the last 12 months, thank you. It's part of your worship. It's part of your giving to him. And it's wonderful to look back and see God's provision and his blessing that he provides. That's been our story as a church. He has provided. Even when we've made some big steps, we thought, God, are you in this? Can you, can you, can you, can you provide? He provides. He's faithful. But talking of steps, I wonder what the next steps are that Maybe you need to take as a result of this. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. What, what's the Lord asking of you right now? I don't know all the situations in the room, but he does. Remember, he sees our hearts. He knows what life looks like for us. And we could say, oh yeah, but we're in a cost of living crisis and there are pressures. And yes, that's true. But remember, it's not ours anyway. It's his. We just get to look after it for a while. So what's God saying to you? This is we begin to wrap up as I begin to land this. <coughs> what's God saying to you about giving? What are perhaps the next steps that 
he would want you to take. For some of you, that might be just to make a start in giving to God. Maybe for you, it's making a start of giving regularly, making that regular commitment. Maybe for you, it's looking at increasing that regular commitment up to maybe a tithe. For some of you, it might be you, you've landed that one. And you're like, I'm, I'm good, Grant. I'm tithing. I can tell you what my paycheck is, and I can tell you what I give. That's great. Thank you. God bless you. But what's your next step? We're called to be generous givers. And if you're about that point already, what's your next step? Are you like, what's God challenging you to do and to grow in it? Reality, actually, is that God isn't after our money. He's after our heart. It's not really about the money. It's about your heart. Has he got your heart? It's been said, I, don't know, I can't remember who said it, but somebody quips that the wallet, here's mine, the wallet <coughs> is a window to the heart. And it's true, isn't it? If you see something, if you know what people spend their money on, you'd see what's important to them. You look through someone's bank statement and see where their money's gone, you'll get to see what's important. So how's your heart? How's your heart in it? Money is just an indicator. But it's not a bad indicator. Has he got your heart? Right the way through this chapter, we find Jesus dealing with people who are asking questions that were designed to trick him. They were designed to trap him into saying something that they wanted him to say. Trying to manipulate him. Yet again, time and again, and in this chapter, Jesus doesn't fall for it. We see him answering these questions in a very wise way. But just as he's answered these questions to the Pharisees and posed some questions back, he poses some questions to us this morning as well. Just as we begin to finish, as we wrap up, let me ask you, I'm going to give you a moment to think about this before the Lord. What's God saying to you this morning? What's your takeaway? What's your, you know, what are you thinking about as you, as you walk home or walk to the car? What's God challenging you about this morning? Is it about your giving? Is it a financial thing for you? Making some next steps in that? Is it about him really having your heart? What is it for you? Is it about really loving God? Being devoted to loving others? What's God saying to you this morning? Let's just have a moment of quiet as well. Ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and to challenge us. Lord, we pray that you would speak and you would challenge. <coughs> we thank you for your word and we thank you for the truth of it. And just in these moments, Lord, that I pray that you would land this. You would challenge us to grow more in you. Whether it be more in loving you, 
more in loving others, growing our giving. Whatever it is, Lord, speak to our hearts now. Father, we pray that as we read your word, as we read of the interactions that Jesus, you had with the Pharisees and others, as we read of the challenging questions you pose them, we pray that we would respond. We pray that you would have our hearts, that we would be loving you, loving others, that you'd have our heart when it came to giving, and the way we use the financial resources that you've given us. We pray that in all of it, God, you would be honoured and glorified and you would be the very centre of our life. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk